0: As we move from ski season to spring, it's time to get those mountain bikes out. Most ski families use season passes to make skiing more affordable and fun. If your family mountain bikes, there's a new way to save on those adventures too. Make the most of spring and summer in the mountains with Lone Pass, the premier North American mountain biking pass. Lone Pass gives you over 60 days of access to some of the best mountain biking destinations across the country. Use discount code SKIMOMS15 to save 15% off your family's Loan Pass today at LoanPass.com. That's L-O-A-M-P-A-S-S dot com. Loan Pass is available in two versions, for kids ages 6 to 11 and the Adult Pass for ages 12 and up. The pass combines access to the most premier resorts, gets you into bike parks, and connects you to shuttle companies to get you where you need to be. It's the one pass you need to bring the best cycling to your family. Remember, you'll get two days at each of the resorts, parks, or shuttles, making the investment one that will pay off big. Remember to use code SKIMOMS15 to save 15% off your family's loan pass today. Welcome to the Ski Mom Fun Podcast, where your hosts, Nicole and Sarah, We're so excited to have Kristen Ulmer on the podcast. She is a fear and anxiety expert, but with a twist because she is a very accomplished um, ski professional who has turned her experiences on the mountain and off into a profession that really helps people kind of unlock their potential. So we are so excited to have Kristen on the podcast this week. Welcome. Psyched to be here. Great subject. Yes, it comes up a lot in um, our group. So we have a group of 9,000 um, moms who are in this Facebook group and some of the, we have a wide variety. Some are just learning to ski now. Some have, um, you know, had ski racing careers and now are racing, raising their own little racers. Um, some are empty nesters and trying to find other women to ski with. So we've got the full, um, diaspora of skiers in our community but fear does come up fear of children getting hurt fear of getting hurt themselves a fear that holds them back from going faster um, and doing steeper things so we're excited to talk to you but we always like to get the origin story to begin of how you were introduced to skiing where you learned to ski and how it became a part of your life
1: I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, in a small town, Henniker, New Hampshire, had a ski area called Pat's Peak. And they offered us free lessons um, on Wednesdays, and we got to get out of school early. And so it was immediately something that I loved, like, um, I definitely progressed faster than the other kids in my class. And, uh, but I didn't really get hooked until I was about 16 years old. Mostly I just went up there with my friends and we did gymnastics and flirted with boys and ate cookies and wrote our pen pals and stayed in the lodge and took a run every once in a while. And that was it. And then right around uh, 16, age 16, I became obsessed. And I somehow managed to um, ditch school every day, even though I was a straight A student. And and go skiing um, during the lunch break that I artificially, by the time it was uh, time for graduation to happen, I had amassed something like uh, 70 detentions that went unfulfilled and they were going to possibly deny me, <laughs> but I, they wound up letting me graduate. So I don't share those stories very <laughs> often. Um, and then I moved out West. I, I mean, I then needed, needed to ski somewhere. And so I decided to go to college where they were skiing and I, I chose Utah And then I uh, started hanging out with a bunch of people who were doing photo shoots for magazines and they were competing in moguls. And just because I wanted to hang out with these new friend group, I started competing in moguls. And next thing you know, I'm on the US ski team for moguls, even though I'd never had any kind of... Formal training aside from a few ski lessons in junior, uh, sorry, in elementary school, I, I don't think I took lessons after second grade, and uh, and I made it on the U.S. ski team without any training, no training camps, you know, competing against girls that had you know the the best training money could buy, going to high school ski academies, being groomed their whole lives, and I I never even had the goal to make it on the U.S. ski team, and. I know all of this sounds like bragging, even talking about my straight A's. Um, My number three core value is accomplishments. So I'm the type of person that has no problem talking about my accomplishments like that was. I'm super proud of that. But once I made it on the U.S. ski team, I had such imposter syndrome. I was like, "How? I don't even know how to ski. How did I make it on this team? And so um, very quickly, I switched to Big Mountain Extreme Skiing, which I was also starting to do filming in movies. And I also didn't have rich parents. So I, I couldn't afford to be on the US ski team. And I had to make a choice because back then you had to be an amateur athlete and yada, yada. I chose Big Mountain Extreme Skiing. And then I was the best in the world at that for 12 years.
2: At first, when you were talking about getting into skiing at 16, I thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, it really kept you out of trouble. But then we kind of learned that you did get into some trouble through your skiing
0: anyway <laughs> but, <laughs> but good trouble um it sounds yeah. like you know it led you to ultimately finding your your path so i think there's a lesson in there for sure absolutely that's incredible tell us a little bit about the 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 big mountain experiences and competitions in that i don't know much about that world um i see occasionally you know i'll i'll get into a youtube um spiral and they'll start coming up, um, you know, because YouTube's trained to give you more and more extreme things. So if I start watching ski videos, eventually it leads me to like the big mountain competitions. But tell us a little bit about how those are run and what the um, parameters are for it. I don't know much about that world at all.
1: We called it extreme back then. Now we call it free skiing. Um, there were no competitions at the beginning. Um, it was all based on reputation. And when the competition started in 1991, so I started in yeah about 1989 and the competition, the first one showed up in 1991 and by 92, they were taking off. Basically the, the people who want to be film skiers compete, but the people who have made it like the A team, the, the super famous ones, they film. And so you could be the winningest big mountain, you know, skier in those competitions but that doesn't mean you're the best. That just means that you are now put in a league where you can hang out with the best. So actually, I don't even know how those competitions are run because I, I only did two competitions. And the first one is in 1990. Well, both of them were in 1992. And uh, and I never did another one ever again because I was a film skier. So I've, I filmed 24 different ski movies And so what I'm saying is that the best film and the wannabes compete. Tell you what, I think that may have changed lately because I know the competitions have gotten pretty fierce. And I don't know if the ones, the guys that are winning or the girls that are winning then eventually leave the competitions behind. I think they still do just if they can start to film. So these um, ski
2: movies, can you just like describe one of those for, for someone that hasn't
1: seen one We call it ski porn. Uh, Basically, back in the day for me, um, we would get paid to ski in movies. And now I know that the athletes pay to be in the movies because it's so competitive. But Warren Miller movies, Teton Gravity Research, like there's a whole bunch of film companies. There's um, they make great movies. And of course, they're the most famous company. And then,
0: so you were saying to us that you get uh, back when you were doing it, that you would get paid. So now it sounds like the athletes are getting paid sponsorships. So they need somebody else to film them, to create the content, to then share with like their helmet brand or their ski brand. It sounds like that's how it works now.
1: Yeah. Back in the day, I mean, I'm sure that people would be surprised to learn this, but we actually got paid to film in these movies. And, you know, of course, now there's so much competition. There's so many people that want to be in these movies, super eager. And um, and we would also have all our trips paid for. Like we'd go heli skiing in Alaska. Everything would be paid for. Plus, we'd get paid. Now the athlete has to pay all their own expenses. And they get what's called a travel budget from their sponsors. And then they also have to give money to the film company to include the athlete. But let's say Solomon sponsors an athlete. Solomon will give the athlete a bunch of money for travel budgie is what we call it. And they'll pay, um, for their travel. And then Solomon will also pay perhaps TGR to have their athlete in the movie. So it's changed a lot.
2: And and were there other women in the, in the ski movie
1: uh, business when you were doing it? Not really. Um, there were a few when I first started, um, but mostly like the cinematographers would be filming their girlfriend or, um, I was pretty much the only female ski film star um, in the world. And then the, the probably the end of the 90s, early 00s, a woman named Wendy Fisher showed up and she started being a film skier and became quite famous. Um, so, but no, for almost a decade,
0: I was the only one. So how did you feel being known as a daredevil and a risk taker? Did you get a lot of your identity from that Um from those labels and kind of being the the one woman in this traditionally um, male dominated field,
1: I loved it. I was addicted to fear. I was having a love affair with fear. If it was dangerous, I wanted to do it. I um, I took up paragliding. I became really obsessed with rock and ice climbing, and then I got into ski mountaineering because of that. Right? <laughs> like if it was dangerous, I was I was all about it. and my goal like if somebody said oh you're the best woman skier i've ever seen i'd see it as an insult i wanted to be the best period i wanted to kick the men's butt and um, i think that's what made me so good i was jumping off 70 foot cliffs and sticking the landing and um, my closest female competition would jump off a 10 foot cliff and crash i mean i was so hungry and desperate for attention and, and uh, like needing to prove myself that I just, I am actually really lucky to be, be alive. It was a very pathological time in my life. Um, but I, I just, I felt so alive and so, so psyched. Yeah. It was a magical time for me to work through a whole lot of childhood demons.
2: This addiction to fear, as you call it, like, oh my God! And that, Sarah,
1: her poor parents. Uh, I'm I know, just
2: thinking. I like, just thinking. <laughs> I, I'm thinking. I am having yeah. Um. So this daredevil addiction to fear, like, did that? Do you think that kind of came out of skiing, or were you like that at, as like you know before skiing as a as a as a younger kid?
1: Great question. It came out of skiing. Like I didn't obviously get into skiing thinking that oh I'm going to start risking my life. Like what does extreme means? Uh, you know I was a professional extreme skier. It means that the consequences of failure are either serious injury or death i mean this this is an extremely dangerous form of skiing. I have so many friends that have died skiing, and i uh, i've I've had over fifty five zero near death experiences, and I was so hungry I was voted top ten most likely to die while skiing. I was number three actually, and my mom read this in a magazine. Um, it, no, I, I think that I just um, found something that I was really innately good at and combined with a, a, an adventure and, and then just the, the fear made me feel so alive that that is, I think, where the addiction came from. and uh, And it
0: just grew from there. Let's take a quick break. Spring is here, and we know even after the snow melts, ski moms love to play outside. Skeeta, our favorite Vermont outdoor accessory brand, has you covered as the seasons change. This spring, Skeeta is celebrating its 16th birthday with fresh prints like the Pastel, Whimsical, and Planaire Air collection. Our favorite pieces include the throwback headbands. This headband is made to keep hair and sweat off your face. The single ply design gathers neatly in the back for maximum styling. Where it's scrunched or lay it flat. It's your perfect partner for any activity where you want a great pop of color and style with minimal fuss. For sunny days, we adore the Skeeta Brim hat. This five-paneled camp hat is the perfect grab-and-go companion. Made in a lightweight, water-repellent material, this hat is ideal for hiking, camping, and the beach. Whether you are cheering the kids on at a lacrosse game, exploring with your girlfriends, or simply walking in the woods with your loyal pub. Gita accessories are there to make Ski Mom life more fun. Save 15% off your order with code SkiMoms15 at checkout. We'll be right back. We're excited to share that the subscription podcast Ski with Sarah and Nicole is live. In episode three of the subscription-only Ski podcast, we're going to be discussing the Icon Pass settlement and also some of our favorite spring skiing traditions. I'm going to be very opinionated here. I think it's a little gross um, because nobody wanted COVID to happen. I'm sure most of all, the mountains, and the mountains didn't want to shut down. I think they were trying to keep their employees and customers as safe as possible and avoid lawsuits. I mean, there's basically just no avoiding lawsuits is one thing I've learned. Subscriptions start at $3 per month and include lots of fun swag. Click the link in show notes to subscribe. And now back to our show. I do wanna talk about um, how you move from this to your Zen practice. So we've got a really good picture of Daredevil Kristen. And I've got a very good sense of wanting to call your mom right now or go visit her and give both of your parents a hug. Um, But so tell us how you found this Zen practice and did it change your life dramatically? Like uh, that when I'm looking, when I did research on you, it seems like it is a big part of your life now.
1: It's the entire reason why I was a professional
0: skier to doing what I do
1: now, being a fear and anxiety specialist and uh, I run mindset only ski camps called The Art of Fear Ski Camps. I'm a thought leader. I'm writing my second and third book. My first book is The Art of Fear. Um, So how I made that transition, oh, and I'm a Zen therapist. That's what I do for a living. So I'm a therapist, but instead of being a psychological therapist, my training is Zen. So I'm a Zen therapist. Um, So how I made the transition is in 2003, I went to Burning Man. And at this point I had four different columns in four different ski magazines around the world. I was a writer and it's really hard to get a monthly column in a ski magazine. Like, you know, there's not a lot of spots for that. And I had four of them. I mean, I was uh, what powder magazine called the protoplasmic mass of the ski industry. So what I'm going to tell you right now was no small thing because I had built up my career to be that I go to burning man and I, I, Arts Festival in the Desert, Anarchy Festival. And I come home and I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of living an inauthentic life. I don't want to do this anymore. This was birthed on insecurity and, you know, like childhood wounds. And I'm just, I'm done. And I, I wrote a letter to everyone. Uh, 20 minutes it took me. And I sent it out and I quit everything. I quit with all my sponsors, quit this, quit writing, quit the television show. And I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> And then um, I, uh, that actually uh, pissed a lot of people off because I had the dream. What I did next is I, I started voraciously trying to figure out what I had learned from being a professional skier for all those years. And I realized I'd learned absolutely nothing except for gratification of my massive ego and a whole lot of hedonism. I started these mindset only ski camps, which I called Ski to Live back then, because I wanted to attend them. I wanted to figure out what I'd learned from being a skier all these years. And at first I hired a sports psychologist and I realized that these sports psychologists don't really have much to contribute. They, you know, studying about this stuff in school, like they, this guy was great, good guy, but just had nothing that made sense to me. So then I started working with this Zen master, hired this Zen master and uh started studying with him. And I learned more in the first 10 minutes of that ski camp. That was a four-day camp. First 10 minutes about everything that I needed to know about why I acted the way I acted and what I had learned from skiing than I had in 15 years as a pro skier. I'm like, okay, this guy is a genius. And I, um, and the the whole camp, I mean, they were in those first 10 minutes where everyone was crying. I'm like, wow, this is intense. And so I started studying with him and I was obsessed with studying with him for about 15 years. And then eventually I wound up taking over my own ski camps and facilitating what he facilitates. And that led to the career that I have today. And I realized now, especially what I teach about fear and anxiety and other emotional issues and what to do about it that the entire reason for my ski career was just to have a unique education that was out of the box. You know, like I didn't learn anything that I teach about fear and anxiety from a university or other self-help gurus or anything like that. I learned from real world in the dirt experience, dealing with a tremendous amount of fear, far more than the average person. And I learned very, very clearly what to do about fear and what not to do about fear that I now uh, teach today. So can you just give us like, kind of a,
2: a few high level, like a little bit more of an idea about what that, what that really means. If someone were to go to one of these camps, like the types of things that would be explored and
1: covered. Yes. So I just had somebody sign up for my March camp yesterday. And she said, I, I want to attend your conquering fear camp. And my camp is not called conquering fear camp. It's called the art of fear camp. And it's kind of the mistake that most people make that, 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 because of the predominant message in the world that we want to conquer and overcome fear, we want to let it go, we don't want to let it get the better of us, you know, fear holds us back and on and on. So what I teach about fear is the radical opposite of what you're going to find out there, the whole conquering and overcoming fear is not the way to go. And I'll I'll talk more about that in a second, but let me just answer your question. So what happened during my ski career that made me appear fearless is this. Um I was actually called fearless by the media. It's like the media had almost more interest in my ability to seemingly not have any fear than they were even interested in my skiing. But that's not true. I My entire ski career was motivated by fear, fear of not being special, fear of being invisible. Um, so it was pushing me, it was motivating me. And, and then I also was having a love affair with fear. So it was the draw, it was the addiction. And it was the relationship that I have with fear that I was so addicted to and the places that it took me. Now, most people do not have intimacy with their fear. Most people do the opposite. Most people are trying to put it out of their minds, block it out, overcome it, conquer, overcome it, right? You know the language. They're trying to get rid of it. And it's that effort that gives it magical powers and turns it into a hold back. But if you shift and and do the exact opposite, instead of a combative relationship with fear, you have an intimate relationship with fear, that intimacy takes you into an altered state where the impossible becomes possible. And you said at the very beginning, before we even started talking, that fear holds a lot of women back from doing things they want to do out there in the mountains. It's actually not true. And I really want you to listen to what I'm going to say next, because this is one of the most important points I'll make. Fear does not hold anybody back from doing anything. It's our unwillingness to feel fear that holds us back. So the secret to great athletes is, first of all, they're willing to feel fear and thus they're willing to step out of their comfort zone. And the second point is, is while they're out of their comfort zone and the fear is there. And let me tell you, you know, you stand at the top of a mountain in Chamonix and there's blue ice everywhere and it's 55 degrees and it's 3000 vertical feet and there's cliffs below and it's a lot of fear. If you have intimacy with that fear, that fear becomes your best friend and it keeps you sharp and focused and brings you into the present moment and helps you bring your A game and be, be, make you Know intuitive, lightning fast, physical reactive decisions that don't involve your mind if you have that really healthy, inclusive, um, flowing relationship with fear. So that was the secret, and that is the secret of professional extreme danger sports athletes, including Laird Hamilton, Big Wave Surfer, Alex Hunold, Free Soloed El Capitan. i talked to all those guys. That's the magic. We have a willingness to feel fear, and we have intimacy with our fear. None of us are fearless. We get that wrong
0: yeah i think that it's very interesting i've definitely heard um something about like pre-race or pre-performance jitters and i thought i heard something very fascinating about that so turning that to the athlete's advantage so when you feel like your heart racing and your pulse quickening that's your body saying rather than like it's a a reaction that you should not appreciate or it's going to hold you back I've heard the description of like that's actually your body saying it's ready to go that it's changing from its normal stasis to this like heightened awareness and then when athletes can use that and they're saying like okay this is my body telling me it's ready to perform at a a level it doesn't normally perform at and i always i thought a a real light switch went off for me when i heard that uh, rather than using that to say like oh my body is like it's not, it's not ready for this thing. It's actually because it's different. It is ready for this thing. And then because it's reacting differently, um, you're going to get a different results.
2: You know, you, you were saying exactly what I was thinking that even as we started talking about like what Kristen said, that we talked about getting past it, conquering it, right? Like, you know, basically looking at it as a negative thing instead of something to embrace, like, which is what I think, you know, we're getting to here. And, Um, similar to what you were both saying, like looking at it as something that's like a positive, looking at something, you know, in a, in a very different light than I think most of us think about it, right. That it's something we've got to push down and get past and not, not feel because, um, it's, it's not something that, that most of us have been
0: taught to think of as, um, something that's positive yeah women have just been taught like to get in touch with their anger um in the you know, <laughs> in the past few decades doesn't make very m- many men happy about that but we've just been co- sort of allowed to feel our um our full uh, array of emotions on that aspect so I think maybe the next step is embracing the fear and you know so many women who do inhabit roles that were traditionally male you know we've been had a relationship with fear that maybe hasn't been discussed because we do we have had to um, you know put on these traditional like male guises and male faces and fear isn't something that you traditionally associate with that so it actually you know to to kristen's point it makes you an even stronger individual if you can own and recognize like all of the things that are in your um your life you're never going to find a ski instructor
1: that's going to say, oh, have an intimacy with fear. They may say, oh, you need to accept that fear is part of your ski experience or part of your life. But then they'll say, but you have to let that go, or you have to get past that, or let's just put it out of our mind, or, you know, can't let it get the better of you. It's like, no matter where you go, self-help guru, psychologists, doctors, ski instructors, you name it, friends, family, um, the internet, like everybody's saying conquer and overcome fear. And every once in a while, you'll find somebody say, oh, we have to accept it. But then there's a comma after that, like like anger. You've talked about anger. We need to accept our anger. We need to feel our anger, comma, and then you got to let it go. And boom, we're right back to resistance to it, or trying to get rid of it, or seeing it as a bad thing. Um, And uh, and so we are not even close to having intimacy with our emotions. And so instead of being in flow with our emotions, our fear, anger, sadness, what have you, we're constantly kinking the hose to that river and in our bodies trying to conquer and overcome all fat fat fear. We we're embarrassed when we cry, we apologize when we cry, we need to hide our anger. We need to let it go. Our fear is seen as a, a something to fight a war against. Like all of this is kinking the hose. Fear is just an emotion felt in your body. It's, it's not, it doesn't start with thoughts. It comes from the amygdala, which is not a thought producing machine proven by science. It's just a feeling in your body. And and so it's, it's, it's not just a conversation about how to be a better skier, but it's a conversation on how to be in flow with your emotions so that you don't have any issues in your life. And just life gets so much simpler. Like we all go through trauma. We all come in contact with difficult people. We all... You know, this is about moms, right? Like you you choose to be a mom, you're gonna have way more fear than somebody like me who isn't a mom because there's so much fear that we're dealing with. And, and in fact, fear's with us every single moment of every single day in every single interaction we have, even if you don't take a lot of risks like I used to. Even if you just hardly ever leave the house, it's still there. And so if you don't know how to be in flow with that emotion, you're just gonna have problems in your life. Um, But if you can unkink the hose and be in flow with it, then life gets so much simpler.
0: And what you're saying about being a parent is, is, you know, we pass along are, um, whether we want to or not, like the kids are witnessing how we have our relationship with all of our emotions. How do we deal with anger? How do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with joy, happiness, you know, all of these things. Um, and you know, you can tell your kids anything you want. You can, you know, put, put posters up on the walls of like, you can do this success is in your grasp, but they truly only take what they see you
1: do. It's like, I had a client though, and she was a, a doctor in New York City. She's very famous. She was living in a man's world. She was fearless. I put that in quotes in her profession. And she was a badass skier. She would come skiing. And, and the further she got along in her career, the more her skiing started to disintegrate. And uh, she's like, I don't understand. Like, oh, I'm pickled in fear now. I, I go skiing and I'm like... You know, I am I used to go heli skiing and now I'm like barely able to ski groomed runs and I'm just so afraid somebody's going to hit me and, you know, all of that. And I said, well, that's undealt with fear. We, we determined. I facilitated her. This wasn't just me making stuff up. I actually took her through a process. But her undealt with fear in her career was showing up triply in her skiing. And so getting her back in flow with fear with regard to her career, this, the uh, skiing fear dissolved. So it's like, you may think it's one thing and it winds up being something entirely different that you're not dealing with at some other area aspect of your life. And on most, most fear or anxiety or discomfort is usually redirected from something else that um, you can't understand intellectually that doesn't make any sense to you. And that's why so many people have these anxiety disorders and they don't know where it's coming from. It's just undealt with fear somewhere in their lives. So that's so interesting what you were saying about, um,
2: your friend being the doctor and how that, you know, impacted her skiing and how you helped her kind of unpack and untangle that. But, um, you know, a lot of the things you're saying about, you know, just fear as it relates to skiing are a lot of the things that go through my mind when I'm skiing. Um, and everything you're saying makes sense. But if I were to sit down now by myself and try to like untangle it, I I don't know that I would know where to start. So is that something where like your book walks through, like, does your book cover this kind of thing? Is this something people have to work more with you one-on-one? You know, where do we
1: start? I'll tell you where to start with me if you want to know more about what I teach. And then I'll finish with things that you can do if you don't want to work with me. Uh, so i have my book the art of fear which is a great resource it's like the bible on fear it's it's super interesting and if you get that book read every sentence because it may sound repetitive but you'll you'll learn if you spend some time really uh, connecting with each sentence that i'm saying something different with every sentence and uh, you'll find what you're looking for in that book for sure the art of fear Um, Second thing, I just had a TED Talk come out a few months ago. Um, I'm wearing a a green jacket. It's on YouTube. Go check it out. It's a 15-minute speech that can really help clarify a lot of things. And then, of course, the third thing, this being a ski podcast, um, come to my Art of Fearski camp and we really go down deep. And everyone that comes there comes for different reasons, and you have a very, very personalized experience. Everybody gets something completely different out of the camp. It's not a one size fits all camp. Um, it's a facilitated process. They're they're so good. I'm so proud of them. So those are three options. Plus, working with me one on one, I'm expensive, but if you can afford it, it's really interesting. The your relationship with fear is the most important. Re- relationship of your life. Um and it's the relationship you also have with your own body. And if you have um a combative relationship with your fear, you have combative relationship with the nature of life itself, your own body, you know, and on and on and your life is just going to be very difficult. Well, thank you so much
2: Kristen. We're so appreciative of your time and we always like to wrap up with a fun question about uh what apres ski looks like for you, how you like to spend it and If you have a favorite drink.
1: Oh, après ski, you know, it's funny when I was a professional skier, it's like skiers like to party, partiers like to ski. I'm so not a party here though. I think I've maybe done the bar scene twice in my life and I've skied a lot of days. Um, So for, for me, après ski is taking my knee brace off. Oh my gosh. I almost think that's the best moment of the day and my ski boots off. And then going and eating whatever I want, because I've just burned a lot of calories, French fries, hot chocolate, you know, the drill and um, warming up in a hot, hot, long, luxurious shower and just feeling that ooey gooey sensation of just like, oh, my gosh, that was such a good day. That sounds amazing.
2: We wanted to tell you about our favorite new ski accessory called the Ski Pack. As you know, we're always looking for ways to make getting to the slopes easier for everyone in the family. And we have found that one of the hardest parts of skiing with kids is getting from the car to the lodge with all our gear. So we wanted to share our latest find. It's called the Ski Pack and it's just like it sounds, a backpack for your skis and poles. There's a reinforced opening at the bottom that's wide enough to allow your skis to go through easily but prevents the bindings from passing through the opening. It comes in a variety of colors and sizes with adjustable straps, so it will fit most everyone from little kids to adults. It'll last multiple seasons made out of a really durable, lightweight, and quick-drying fabric. The most important thing is that the Ski Pack will make skiing easier and more fun for everyone in your family. You can check out the Ski Pack at puremountainfun.com. And use code SKIMOMS2023 at checkout for 20% off your order. Exclusions apply.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Ski Moms Fun Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Head to the skimomsfun.com website to check out our swag and find out more about our community. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at skimomsfun. We'll be back next week with more interviews and insights. Thanks, Snow. No one works as hard as a ski mom. With Mother's Day right around the corner, we want to remind everyone to shop the Ski Mom's gift guide for the best ideas. These are the gifts we want to give and get for Mother's Day. Prices range from under $10 for simple treats like notepads to big splurges like a new boot bag. Remember, the big day is Sunday, May 12th, so you want to shop now to make sure everything gets there in time for Mom. Visit the SkiMomsFun.com gift guides page or click the link in show notes to see our picks for this year. Make it easy for your kids, partner, or spouse, and just forward them the link. Or better yet, treat yourself to something from our expertly curated Ski Mom wish list. Remember, visit SkiMomsFun.com and look for the gift guide page.